Welcome once again to the front lines of freedom. This is a podcast where we speak to some of the most incredible and inspiring people across the world who are fighting for freedom, fighting to defend democracy and standing up for justice. And in almost every situation, it is at great personal cost. My name is Ivan Mawaride and I'm from Zimbabwe. And in Zimbabwe, a couple of years ago, I started a citizens movement quite by accident. It led to protests against the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe by millions of people. Found myself in maximum security prison on many occasions and thankfully was able to escape and not only tell the story but stand with others as we defend democracy. Today I'm speaking to to somebody who has a story to tell us and it's a story of an individual who cannot be with us today and you'll soon discover why. But what he stands for and the statement that he's absence makes is absolutely powerful. On the 25th of February 2022, a young man who was a shining star, who had talent as a musician, who loved his country and his people, stood in front of a temple and lit himself on fire as a way of saying enough is enough and we want freedom. His name is Sewang Nobu, who was 25 years old and is a Tibetan young man who really wanted to make a point that enough of the oppression of his people was just enough. You're going to hear some things today, but I think that at the end of it all, you will find a a rare inspiration to give your life and your abilities for something that means something much more than just yourself. I want to welcome here with me today, she is the executive director of the Students for a Free Tibet, which is a student's organization of young Tibetans who are in school, who are growing up, who are coming out of college, who are growing up in exile, and some who are in different parts of the world. And all they do is advocate for the freedom, advocate for justice for their nation, Tibet, and what they're being put through by the Chinese Communist Party. Her name is Perma Doma and she's here with me today. Uh, Pema, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about Tibet, talk to us about the work that you're doing, but also talk to us about the life and the amazing story of Sewang Nobu today. Welcome. Hi, Evan. Uh, Thank you so much for the very kind introduction, as well as for making the platform on you know your podcast to talk about this critical issue. I, I could never do enough justice in that introduction. I've got to be honest with you. When I consider the depth of the work that you do, the amount of danger you put yourselves in, but most importantly, some of the stories that you tell the world about uh, what is happening in Tibet, what has happened over the years, and of course, the amazing work of inspiring the next generation of freedom fighters for your great nation. And that for me, you know, always remains something that, that I deeply respect and admire. Pema, I want you to, to walk us through the story that I've just talked about. I think that's just going to be our starting point. Sewang Nobu, 
Tell us about who he was and what it is he he stood for up until the point where he decides that it is better for me to light myself on fire because of of wanting freedom for my people. Evan, I really think that when I think about the story of Tewang Norbu, uh, when I think about who he was and the actions that he took, he really represents an entire generation of Tibetan youth inside Tibet, especially, and also around the world who have just had as you said, enough of the oppression, the occupation, the human rights violations by the CCP. And the morning of February 25th, Tewang Norbu was a normal 25-year-old. He was an artist. Uh, he was very well-known, very talented as a musician. And he woke up and went onto his Weibo, similar to his Twitter, and wrote a message of gratitude for all those that had been supporting his musical career. And then he walked out of his home and he walked in front of the Potala Palace, what perhaps the most well-known and recognizable building or architectural structure in all of Tibet. And he lit his body on fire. But I think the story of Tawang Nobu really begins... Before that, he grew up in Driru County in Nagchu. It's a region of Tibet. And when you think about what's happened in Tibet, in Driru, for example, you can start to see where his passion or where his kind of intentions and motivations may come from. In 2013, when Tewang Norbu was really just a young boy, actually, student, a child, there was a climate activist named Kunchuk Jimpa from the same county as him. And what he had been doing was he saw an injustice and he began collecting information and sharing it with the outside world. In 2013, the Chinese government followed Kunchuk Jimpa and detained him, and he was sentenced to 21 years in prison for the act of sharing information about climate protests inside Tibet. And for the next six years, Kunchuk Jimpa was never seen or heard of by anyone in his family, until one day he showed up in a hospital, paralyzed and hemorrhaging from his brain. Uh, and he eventually died in the hospital without finishing his 21-year sentence. This is the example of somebody from the same community, the same exact county as Kunchok Jimpa, growing up as a young child, seeing how those that stand up against the Chinese government and call for injustice, those that are captured by the Chinese government and taken to prison, oftentimes their lives are now in the mercy of the very people that are occupying and oppressing their families, their communities, their identity. And so when you think about where it is that Kuncho, uh, where it is that Tewang Nobu grew up, the life that he lived before that morning, you can start to see why in a space like Tibet in 2022 at that time, there is no space for dissent. There is no, there is no room to be critical of authoritarian regime, such as the Chinese Communist Party. And you start to see a generation of young people who are forced to choose, live a life of silence or take a bold stance against an authoritarian regime and take a stance for justice. At the time that Tsewang Nobu has lit himself on, on fire, he doesn't pass away immediately. And I read that whilst he was in hospital or whilst he was uh, being cared for, he was almost, you know, kept alone uh, and, you know, access to him was denied. But apart from that, there seemed to be even a silencing of him even after the act. His social media footprint was tampered with. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. After the moment when Tsewang Nobu lit his body on fire, the witness from the surrounding area say that what he was calling for was a free Tibet. His whole body was lit on fire and I can only imagine the excruciating pain. But in that moment, his his mind, his uh, entire soul was focused on one message, which was that uh, Tibet needs to be a free country. Tibet needs to be free and Tibetans need freedom. 
because his message, his voice holds so much power, the Chinese government was dead set on censoring him. They censored news about his self-immolation. They censored news about even his death. And even after his death, they, they refused to provide his family their body because they know that taking his body and doing the proper Buddhist rituals for his body would be a, a moment for the community to come together and unify on their love and respect for Taewong Nobu and on their joint care for the mission that he devoted his life to. And following that, the Chinese government actually went and wiped out. They started seeing thousands of messages being left onto his social media platforms, messages of support, love, grief over his passing. And the Chinese government deleted without a, even a footprint of a trace left all his social media accounts, every trace of him. And even till this day right now, over a year later, you can't find a single one of Taewang Noba's songs on social media streaming sites inside Tibet. For example, Apple Music. In the US, you can listen to Taewang Nobu songs. In Tibet, you would not be able to find a single song by Taewang Nobu on any music streaming platform because the Chinese government knows that the power of his his message and his voice has the potential to inspire millions of others. How many followers did did Sewang Nobu you know have on social media and and give us a sense of just the the reach of his talent, his musical gift. Where had he performed? Taewang Nobu was someone by who, by all accounts, would have been the future pop star of our of our generation. He had uh, competed on several national level and regional level reality singing competition shows, including Sing China, and even being invited to be as an artist on The Voice China. And on his social media, he had over five hundred thousand people following his music, his career, his talent. And so you can really see that some of the songs that he made, for example, were having an impact. Uh, one of his most popular songs, for example, is called Zampa. And Zampa is the staple food of Tibet. It's roasted barley that's ground up. And it's called either Zampa or Pa. And it's eaten as a staple food that Tibetans have eaten for thousands of years. But in China, it's not very commonly eaten food. And actually, during the Cultural Revolution, during China's occupation of Tibet, Thousands of Tibetans died when the Chinese government tried to force Tibetans to stop eating zampa and eating more similar foods to what Chinese people ate. There was, you know, in 1959, where there was the first massive uprising against the Chinese government that was super unified. It took place right in front of the Potala Palace, the same building where the self-immolation happened. That time, there was a newspaper message that was sent out all around Tibet, and it says to all the Tsampa eaters, because at that time they were trying to say, what does it mean to be a Tibetan? They said, to all the Tibetans, to all the Tsampa eaters, to all those that are, you know, um, from the Tibetan nation, come together and rise up against Chinese occupation. And Taewang Nobu had a song even called Tsampa, which talked about the beauty of our culture and what it means for us as Tibetans to eat a food such as Tsampa. And so he was able to kind of toe the line between what the Chinese government would allow uh, and being seen favorably by them. And by all accounts, he was someone that from the outside, you would think he supported even possibly the Chinese government because he participated in these TV shows that were run by Chinese state media. And he was very, um, he didn't speak out vocally against the Chinese government. And so you can see that in this way, he represents that generation of Tibetans inside Tibet who don't speak out because the risk is too great. But on the inside, once they have the opportunity, once they make the decision to speak out, they have so much to say about the situation inside Tibet right now. You know, you mentioned something about the song that he sang about the food, Tsampa. And then you mentioned about, you know, that statement to all the Tsampa eaters. And it seems to me that the, the CCP has been and continues to be on a mission to to eradicate 
Tibetan culture to cause it to not be relevant to Tibetans and to not exist. Can you quickly walk us through how has this oppression of China over Tibet come? What's the quick history of that? Because there's a lot of people that don't understand how it is that China has then taken over Tibet and has continued to oppress. Tell us just a little bit about how that has come about. The situation between China and Tibet, the simplest way to really describe it, it's a colonization. Um, it is a colonial relationship. Um, Tibet was an independent country um, for, I would say, like as a nation, the history is spans over 10,000 years, perhaps between over 11 to 13,000 years. And the unified Tibetan kind of national identity has existed for thousands of years as well. And around the 1940s, the Chinese government under the Communist Party began entering Tibet and providing financial support, aid, building up infrastructure inside Tibet. And once it became clear that their intentions were more than just financial support, the Tibetan people began to resist that occupation by a colonizing force. And by that point, tens of thousands of Tibetan people came together to peacefully resist China's occupation. Countless people were murdered, were killed. Um, they opened fire into peaceful protests. And you can even imagine, for example, the scene that we see today in Ukraine. There were Tibetans that came up together, civilians from all over Tibet, who took arms to fight against, to resist against the Chinese government. There were um, children, young people, elderly, who came together to join protests, to call for an end to the occupation. And this took place for over the course of several decades, actually, uh, up until even the 70s. And since then, the Chinese government kind of came to the understanding that they wouldn't be able to kind of just come in and put their flag over the Potala Palace and and call this China because the Tibetan people wouldn't give up without a fight. So what they realized was they actually had to find a way to control Tibetan identity uh, or better yet to eradicate it and turn it into a homogenous country where China and Tibet both are following within the Chinese identity. And this is all very clearly written out within Xi Jinping thought, which Xi Jinping has now become the most powerful ruler of China since Mao Zedong. And so this, for example, is most clearly written within Xi Jinping thought where they actually call for young people, children to all follow within the ideological viewpoints of the Chinese government and of Xi Jinping. And you begin to see this turn into a policy as well within the colonial boarding schools inside Tibet. And so after decades of occupation, the Chinese government, every time they think they may be making some progress because Tibetans are, are perhaps not speaking out vocally, then you see a, a, a period of tension, for example, in 2007, where tens and tens of thousands of Tibetans, even after decades of occupation and colonization, came up and rose up in a peaceful, nonviolent movement against the Chinese government. And then in 2009, we saw this wave of uncontrollable self-immolations where the Chinese government couldn't even control or force Tibetans to accept their uh, colonial rule over Tibet, uh, despite doing everything they had the power to do. Despite all the force of military, of financial pressure, they weren't able to tame or control this Tibetan identity. And so they began developing a way to control that identity. And one of the policies that they've implemented is the colonial boarding schools, where children as young as four years old are separated coercively by, from their parents and taken to state government-run schools. This is exactly kind of what you would imagine as being um, a policy of colonization and eradication of an entire culture. And so right now inside Tibet, about 80% of every child between the ages of 6 and 18 years old are living away from their parents and being raised in government facility campuses and schools. And this is something that no doubt Teo Nobu, for example, as a young person, would have either experienced directly himself or have known friends or other young people 
cousins in his family who had been um, part of this colonial boarding school system because it's so pervasive throughout all of Tibet at this moment. And it's kind of, you can see how this policy directly translates to the Chinese government's attempts to eradicate the very identity of what it means to be a Tibetan person. You know, just listening to the way the children are treated, I mean, this is abduction, boarding camps are really concentration camps. It seems to me that they profile and pointedly attempt to forcefully change these young people. Over the years, hundreds of thousands, in fact, I would I would dare say millions of Tibetans have escaped from Tibet and made the hard choice to leave home and taken a very dangerous journey through the Himalayas mountains to escape into places mostly like India. What have some of the stories of escape been like? How many people have escaped over the years and are people still escaping today? And what are some of the experiences you have heard? Since 1959, over 100,000 Tibetans have escaped, recorded Tibetans have escaped from Tibet over the Himalayas, including my, my father when he was um, just a small child, about eight or nine years old. He was living in the center of the capital where there were these peaceful protests happening and the Chinese government were indiscriminately shooting into crowds of people and it was no longer safe. And for weeks, they would walk during the night and hide in caves during the day till they reached safety across the border. And for me as well, I think I remember... Um, when I was a young person, I'm quite close to Tsewang Nopa's age, and I can only imagine that growing up, we would have experienced many of the similar feelings as our community went through situations like um, Kunchuk Jimpa's death at the hands of the Chinese government, or for example, the wave of self-immolations when I was perhaps just 14 or 15 years old, the peak of self-immolations, waking up every morning and seeing on the news another Tibetan has self-immolated inside Tibet. For me, that that kind of inspired me or, or motivated me to go go do something to support Tibetans from inside Tibet. So I went to go teach actually, at, at, um, teach English uh, when I was eighteen at a school for largely about seventy percent of the students are those who grew up inside Tibet and escaped, and now we're pursuing education later on in life. So they were mostly in their twenties and thirties as they they were growing up inside Tibet until until a later age and i met one student for example and i remember she shared her story with me and when she was 12 years old her parents collected up all the financial resources they could get together and they realized they could afford to send like three of their children into exile and her being the oldest she was sent as kind of the caretaker for two of her younger siblings at 12 years old the story that really kind of um resonated with me about crossing the border was when they had to cross these rivers, most adults, the water would come to their chest level or so. And so they would carry their dry food over their heads as they crossed the river. But being just 12 years old, as she tried to hold the food over her head, she could hardly um, get her face above the water. So she accidentally dropped all of their food. That would have been their sustenance for the coming weeks as they're walking across the Himalayas. I know many trekkers make, you know, walk across the trek on the Himalayas, but to do that with no food, with no gear, with no uh, warm enough clothes while taking care of two children and only being able to walk in the dark. And I remember that when 
when she, uh, you know, reached, reached the border, her siblings and her had been near the point of starvation because they hadn't had food on their journey, only just scraps um, of bits of edible foods that they could find along the way. And when they reached the reception center for Tibetan refugees, the first three times she tried to eat, she couldn't keep the food down. I remember she told me because of the starvation conditions within her body. And at the end of that whole experience, I remember her saying that the moment where she got audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and she was able to attend a, a Tibetan school for Tibetans, by Tibetans, that would respect and honor her culture and her identity rather than try to disseminate it. She realized that she completely understood why her parents made the decision that they did to send her into exile. And so that story to me, you know, it kind of really reflects the hardships that Tibetans have gone through and also shares the motivations of why it is that many Tibetans make this life or death journey across the across the Himalayas. You know, th- that story, I mean, I have, you know, young children of similar age to the story you've just told me and just trying to process what you've told me it is it is it's it's unbelievable that this is what parents have to make that decision because that's the only choice they have for their children to live in freedom and and to watch a parent value freedom to that extent for me is just amazing and, and it puts a whole new light on what freedom means uh, for people that have lived without it we're going to come back to talking about young people in a second but you mentioned that this young girl when she finally gets out and into exile and she finally has audience with the Dalai Lama you know she she begins to realize some things and i want to just talk for a second about his holiness the Dalai Lama and the role that he plays as a guide as a source of strength i suppose for the tibetan people for the tibetan culture and and just the hope tell us a little bit about how important that role is you know that he plays I think one of the most beautiful examples of the role that his holiness plays is even inside Tibet to this day like similar to Tawano but many musicians will make songs that are symbolic and they try to represent what they're truly saying without saying anything political and one of those common lyrics may be something like the sun will rise again in Tibet and what this means any Tibetan will understand uh, those inside Tibet and around the world that that they'll be able to see his holiness their sun uh, back inside Tibet the sun for for Tibetan people which um, illuminates light and and the light, that light is the wisdom of his holiness's path teaching Tibetans to lead a compassionate life full of, you know, um, kindness for others. Inside Tibet, for example, even saying a lyric like this could land you in prison, but you see Tibetans who are still weaving this symbolism and metaphorical lyrics into their songs. And so when you think about the fact that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been outside of Tibet for decades now, for majority of his life, but inside Tibet, there are Tibetans around Tibet. There are still, for example, scenarios where just um, a year ago, you know, Tibetans who there was a raid of a town and they sent so many, I think it was over 100 Tibetans to prison because they were holding photographs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama secretly in their homes. So you can see that even though there's been a distance that what, what His Holiness means, the message of compassion and the wisdom that he imparts towards the Tibetan people who uh, follow his teachings, it's something that down to the deepest core of Tibetan people's identity, it really helps guide them and and shape their perspective on the world. So it's something that can't just be taken away by removing a photograph or throwing somebody in prison. It's something that really just gives gives a meaning or purpose to life in many many scenarios as well. You know, when I'm I'm thinking about 
Tsewang Nobu at 25 years old on the 25th of February, which is not an accident because the 25th of February is actually the Tibetan New Year, isn't it? It changes but from year to year, but this one, yes. Okay. And so, you know, you can tell that he has thought about this and he goes and he self-immolates in front of the Potola Palace and confirm this was the residence of the Dalai Lama. Yeah. I can see this young man connecting with his holiness and what he stands for and and his message in that action. And I want to just talk a little bit about your generation of freedom seekers or freedom fighters. You were a student. You were you were born in exile, as are many of your friends who are um, are based in India, who were born in India, some in France, some here in the United States and in different parts of the world. And somehow you you have a rejuvenated spirit and sense of taking up the cause from your forefathers, the ones who escaped, the ones who sent you across borders and 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 across the Himalayas mountains. And you've you seem to have taken this torch of freedom for Tibet. Walk me through your own journey. How did you, I mean, you're now the executive director of this organization, Students for a Free Tibet, but how did you how did you find a sense of purpose or how did you make the decision that this is what I want to do? Where did you start? Where do where do you pick up the baton to fight for a free Tibet, even though you were not born there and you are, you were in exile? I think for me, for me specifically, I, I grew up in between Boston, Massachusetts and Kathmandu, Nepal. And those are kind of the places where as a child, so many of your experiences shape your values, your, um, your motivations in life. And I remember as a child, for example, uh, valuing my Tibetan identity, of course, um, as a core part of who I am. And there was one day also on Tibetan New Year's where my family, my parents, my sister, and my whole family went to Bodhna Stupa, which is um, Bodha in Kathmandu, which is a highly um, auspicious and um, religiously significant uh, site for Tibetans. And we were there to celebrate New Year's. It was the, the most joyous day of the year uh, for many Tibetans. And I remember uh, wearing my new Tibetan outfit and looking around and seeing so many Tibetans in their, in their you know, special clothes that they've handpicked just for this day. And meanwhile, there were um, troops, military troops with guns that were as almost as tall as I was at the time who were monitoring every Tibetan. They weren't allowing different Tibetans to speak to one another. You could stay within your own family group and uh, conduct your religious activities, but you can't connect with one another. And that was because and that was a time that was, um, I would say now almost a decade and a half ago. And since then, um, every time when I, for example, travel to different areas or speak to um, people from different countries, I see how China's influence is growing even outside of its borders. Within my grandparents and parents' generation, they could occupy Tibet, but they couldn't control the Tibetan identity outside of Tibet. And within my generation, I've seen how their influence has spread even beyond the borders of Tibet um, and other occupied territories towards Nepal, towards Southeast Asian countries, uh, towards even, for example, um, places like in Greece, where we did um, political activism against the Chinese government during the Beijing Olympics in 2022. And for example, I myself, I was arbitrarily detained by the Greek authorities when I was trying to speak to the media about what's happening inside Tibet. 
considering that China is a major investor in Greece. And for example, there was a press conference we were doing and the media were facing towards my direction. And there was actually a um, Chinese uh, plainclothes officer who came into the press conference site and stared, uh, stared at us all one by one in our eyes and then walked away almost as if sending a message like I have, I know who you are and I know what you've said. For example, you know, later going to the restroom, the, the same plainclothes officer tried to corner us, you know, me and one another activist and he was asking where are you where did you come from where is your family from because he wants to intimidate uh people who are speaking out when i asked you know the, my, my, my colleague asked him back where are you coming from and he just made direct eye contact and said i'm from china and to me that was a message it's like when i look into his eyes i know that this could be the last eyes that control jimpa maybe looked into before he was uh, tortured to death this could be the eyes of the person who arrested or murdered any number of tibetans inside tibet who have um supported and and encouraged the lockdown and occupation of Tibet. Seeing this happen in a European country, that was something that I never thought maybe could happen in my lifetime. You know, as a child, my mother probably thought that that could never happen in Nepal in her lifetime either. So I can see how with an authoritarian regime like China, you can't give a little and take a little because if you give a little, they just take a lot. And what they're taking is our freedom. And that's something that we cannot really play games with. So for me, it's, I do this work, um, as a Tibetan because I truly believe that Tibet is a free country, will be a free country again. But I also do it because I'm, don't really feel I have a choice as what, you know, like the rest of the world may not be aware yet of the future kind of potential of China's, um, authoritarianism to spread. But as a Tibetan, I've seen it firsthand within my own lifetime. And that's something that, um, it's a duty of mine to make sure that the world is prepared and, and has the best shot possible to counter that spreading authoritarianism. So the student network, the Students for a Free Tibet organization is growing. It has chapters in different places. Would you tell us a little bit about some of the activities that you do, that you have done, and some of the protests that you have led? I know you've mentioned the one where you traveled to Greece and you were there challenging you know, what was happening with the Olympics. Tell us a little bit more about what the chapters do and, and just in terms of their growth and the other young Tibetans who are joining. So Students for Free Tibet is a grassroots organization, um, and our mission statement is to amplify the voices of Tibetans inside Tibet and to wage strategic nonviolence campaigns uh, targeted against the Chinese Communist Party and those that uphold the authoritarian regime. And I would say that grassroots mobilization, grassroots activation, it's really the core of the work that we do. So we conduct trainings for young people and we train them on public speaking, uh, advocacy, strategic campaigning, uh, tactics of nonviolence resistance and uh, leadership, general leadership trainings as well. And we have this wide range of trainings and we use it to empower young people to stand up for what you know, the values that we all believe in. And within that network, there are campaigns that will raise, for example, right now, the primary campaign we're working on, it's against the mass DNA collection inside Tibet. And the Chinese government has collected so much data on Tibetans and they use it um, to surveil and monitor and also to censor the ability of, of people to speak freely on, you know, express their views. And since inside Tibet, there is a grid system. Tibetans have no freedom of movement. There is colonial boarding schools. There's no freedom of education within your own community. So many freedoms have been one by one plucked away from Tibetans. And now even the right to privacy for your own DNA has um, been deeply challenged within Tibet with Citizens Lab reporting that 
over 1 million Tibetans have had their DNA cataloged by the Chinese government, which is, you know, over about 25 to 30% of all the Tibetan DNA um, in the Tibetan Autonomous Region has been cataloged already. And this is unprecedented. It's, it's an unprecedented DNA mass collection campaign drive within just one region, um, within just one country by another, by a colonizer. It's never been done before, but... Um, for me, as somebody who has seen how authoritarianism works and how authoritarian leaders, how their brains tick, this is something that next the junta coup will try to implement, perhaps potentially, or the um, Nicaraguan government that's just expelled activists and stolen their um, citizenship. These are the types of tactics that these regimes are going to jump to next. And so there's actually one American-based company called Thermo Fisher that has provided um, DNA kits to the police inside Tibet and that those DNA kits are, they're being used for transfer of technology, also just directly to collect DNA samples. And the DNA samples that this company has provided to the police in Tibet are directly aiding and abetting the creation of an unprecedented mass database, um, which is used for surveillance and also strongly violates privacy. Pema, I, um, I think the amazing thing that I see you doing is passing this torch on to the next generation who are as motivated, as committed, as vibrant for for freedom, for justice, for their people, for their culture. You know, they're as motivated as their predecessors. And I find that um, a task that I think our world needs to be doing more is teaching a generation how to be free, what it means to be free, but what, how to fight for your freedom, how to stand for it and how to continue to be present for the rights that so many people, you know, take for granted. I'm going to throw you a curveball and ask you if you had one piece of advice or one piece of uh, motivation for people that live in the free world uh, about their democracy and their freedom, what would that be? I think if I had to say one piece of advice, and it's something that I don't think everyone may be able to incorporate, and that's okay, but for those that it does resonate with, my advice would be that compromise is a very slippery slope, and it's very easy to make justifications for small things here, small things there. But one day we wake up and find that we've actually compromised our freedom away or compromised the freedom of others away, the human rights of others away. My advice would be that if you find yourself wondering whether something is right or wrong or whether a small wrong is, is okay to, you know, pass by or, or slide by, slide by, just remember that it's, it's a culmination of all of these small justifications that millions of people around the world are making that actually enable the mass atrocities, such as what's happening inside Tibet, in East Turkestan, in Hong Kong. It, that, that's the exact atmosphere and climate that regimes like the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, really need those conditions to thrive um, and exist. So I guess that would be my advice is that we should not allow small justifications to pile up within our lifetime. If we want the world to be a better place at the end of our lives than it was in the beginning, we need to make sure that we are the ones that, that say enough is enough and we will not let the small injustices slide by. Wow. Those are powerful words. Um, you know, we're coming up onto time and um, I have to say that this has been a deeply introspective causing uh, conversation when I think about, you know, Tsewang Nobu, when I think about the 12-year-old girl that you spoke about, when I think about, you know, your parents and and, and all the people that, that have had to bear the brunt 
of oppression. And you said something earlier on that is such a powerful statement. I don't know if it's an original statement to you, but certainly it struck a chord. And you said, if you give a little, they take a lot. And that's something so powerful to remember that we cannot sit back and allow the small things, the small injustices to go by. Somebody must speak up. Somebody must stand up. For Tsewang Nobu, self-immolation was that statement. And if you're wondering what self-immolation is, it is the action of setting fire to oneself, especially as a form of protest or sacrifice. I don't, I don't have a way to, to, to completely appreciate what it means when somebody gets to that stage. But I do understand that it, it makes us stop and think and it makes us remember and it makes us recommit to what really really matters. Pema, thank you so much for coming and being with us on the front lines of freedom, for talking, for opening up, and thank you for giving your life to something that matters to so, so, so many people. Thank you for having me, Evan, and thank you for all the work that you've done as well to further freedom and justice around the world. This has been another episode of the front lines of freedom. And as you go away, take away with you the story of Tsewang Nobu, a young man who had a lifetime of dreams ahead of him, a young man who had every reason to remain alive. He could have chosen to live a life silently, quietly, healthily, wealthily, but instead made a decision one day that if my life is going to mean anything, then it must be used to highlight what is, is so important for millions of people. And so in memory of this young man, Sewang Nobu, today's episode is, is dedicated to his life and is dedicated to the people of Tibet who continue to fight, even though it seems like it's an insurmountable task. They are revived, they are rejuvenated, and they keep standing up until they find freedom. Thank you for joining me here today. Remember, do share this with a friend. We'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. 